Welcome to Source Not Found, a show about the worst versions of your favorite things. Every other week, we explore an IP, franchise, or fandom by way of its sequels, spinoffs, and side projects. Basically anything but the source material. I'm Brandon Junier. Per Alan's advice, I added a little extra flourish to my name to make it more uh, interesting and easy to remember. Nice. And I'm Bo Woodall, and I am an executive assistant in hell. Sir, your week is slammed. We've got pitchforks over the pit on Monday. On Tuesday, you've got to put a giant gold cape on someone that weighs like a full ton. And then uh, you have to cut off people's heads on Wednesday. And then Thursday looks like you're just putting people back in boiling pitch. All right, but like the duty river, that's like I don't have to deal with that this week. No, no, no duty river. Uh, that's, that's good to go? Yeah, not, not until next month. We're in pretty good shape. Then there have been worse weeks. <laughs> yeah. So this week we are covering uh, New Year's Revelations. This time, instead of, okay, going to the hell that was the video game Bible Adventures, we're going to regular hell. Uh, we read a Dante's re- reimagining of Dante's Inferno by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, Inferno, released in 1976. This book was something, something special. But before we get into it, Brandon, I do have a question for you, my friend. What you got? What is your experience with Christian literature? So we're, we're not talking straight scripture, Bible, um, mm, mm-hmm. I don't know, the, the Gnostic Gospels, the lost teachings of Jesus, shit like that. No, I'm talking more like Milton and, uh, I mean, Dante. Yeah, I mean, we can just get right into it. I never read the Divine Comedy. Uh, somehow, you know, just, it's funny, like, we've talked before about being English majors, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, and then people just, like, assume that we've just read everything sometimes, and every once in a while, I almost feel like a little bit of embarrassment when, like, something comes up, and they're like, so how do you feel about this classic? And I'm just like, oh, somehow, I made it through without dealing with that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I only read that recently, uh, and not even the entire work of Dante, just Inferno, just the first of the trilogy. Not, not Paradiso. Um, just in preparation. Pur- Purgatorio, I think, were the other two. Yeah, no, uh, Purgatorio, that's going to just maybe stay in limbo for a while. We're going to keep it there. Uh, keep waiting on that one. Snort. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, aside from that, um, also mentioned before, right, like English major, also religious studies major, a lot of overlap there. So, I guess, yeah, I did deal with a lot of, um, Christian literature. Um, I'm trying to think what like came up in my major. I remember reading the Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, I had to read that um, one too. You read that one? Yeah. Uh, I also read to uh, what Terrain in Hell by Stephen Brust, which was kind of a okay. like a a fantasy style Milton sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like I was a big fan of. This is a weird way, way to say it, but I was a real, real big fan of like the demonology and the the occult aspect of Christianity, right? Yeah. Um, I actually ended up taking a course in college that was just the occult and literature, and we read things like the Gnostic Gospels and the secret teachings of Jesus, and learned about the Rosicrucians and the the Masons and and shit like that. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it all fascinated me. Yeah. I ended up writing like a, a 40 page paper on just all of the different angels that are not mentioned in the Bible. There are so many, uh, one for each bone in your body. There's an angel. And then you get into the archangels like Uriel and Raphael and, 
um, you know, all the the more common ones like Michael. Um, but I always found it incredibly fascinating, both the demonology aspect of it, looking at how demons are kind of how demons in hell and devils and they're they seemed to be different things, demons and devils uh, were were portrayed in literature. And, you know, I've already mentioned in the past, like I was a big urban fantasy fan. Mm -hmm. Um, If you gave me a book that took place in the modern world that had vampires and ghosts and shit, I was probably into it a little bit. And more often than not, by about book five, all of those series end up introducing either angels or devils or demons or something like that. Like they run out of the cryptids. So they're like, well, fuck, let's get Jesus-y with it. And uh, yeah. here's Samael or, oh, look, uh, Judas never actually died. Um, he's been living this whole fucking time and he's a supervillain effectively, you know, shit like that. Um, we're hunting down the spear of destiny. And then I also loved like the Constantine graphic novels, which go really hard to the paint. Oh, yeah. And some uh-huh. of the darker aspects of that stuff. But it's it's so prevalent in fantasy. Because a lot of fantasy writers either use it as allegory or use mm-hmm. characters directly pulled from religio mythology, right? Right. Uh, not just Christian, but also, uh, you know, Buddhist, Hindu, Shintoism, um, anything that has a deity or a concept of an afterlife or no concept of an afterlife for that matter, normally can be pulled from and plugged into fantasy novels. That's a good point. And um, there's a lot of inherent power in all these icons, these characters, these mythologies. And they're so ubiquitous, right? Ingrained right. In, in Western culture to a certain degree that you can often just sort of use it as a, a shortcut or sort of you can assume a lot of knowledge on the part of the reader or the audience for having yes. some conception of what they are. It allows you to just get right into some deeper aspects of that or maybe play with it, deconstruct it a little bit. Which is a nice segue into, because I mean, this book we're talking about today, it does that to a certain degree, although it is still beholden to Dante's conception of hell. Right. This is some hardcore meta-Christian fantasy. Right. Like, they, they mention the fact that this is all based around Dante. Yeah, I mean, in the, the author's afterward, they basically refer to it as a, a sequel. Yeah, kind of. Dante's Inferno. Uh, and it is as such, I mean, Dante's work... You mentioned getting meta with it. I mean, it's referenced continually throughout this book, and it definitely takes liberties with the source material. But yeah, it also mentions Dante's shortcomings, which is that's a wild thing to do as an author. (laughs) That's like if all if all of a sudden, again, Lin Manuel Miranda came out and been like, "Look, Shakespeare was really cool, but look what I did better." Got some shit wrong. I'm here to correct the record. Yeah, that yeah. that's a called shot you can't shoot. Well, it's a brazen move, but they, you know, and they have a brazen uh, sort of, yeah, pretty arrogant, pretentious main character for us to, yeah. to sort of shepherd us through that that reconception of, of Dante. Very, very much. And I got to be honest, I, I mentioned I just I just read through that thing. And it's a personal problem, I'm sure. But... I struggled. This book? <laughs> I struggled. No, uh, with Dante. Oh, with Dante. Yeah, I did, I did too. Well, so they, they mentioned in this book, and, and we'll, we'll get into the, the book whole cloth here in a second, but they do mention in the book, like, 
Dante talks a lot about people that are important in his time and his life. He talks a lot about Italians, a lot about Italians. And you know what? We don't fucking care about those dudes now. 80% of them are absolutely unimportant in the grand scheme of history. Like some of them were merchants that like, you know, cut their books a little bit or, you know, a, a priest who did this that's now unimportant because history looks for big rocks thrown in ponds. And that's mm-hmm. about it. Right. And it's just that work is just it's all references. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. All literary allusions. Yeah. It's like trying to read Ready Player One in like 3248. Right. Or or even this book in Inferno. I mean, yeah. it. the thing is, we're talking about referencing things of your own time, which I think is a. it's not a knock against the original work. I mean, that whole that was part of Dante's purpose. Like I'm writing in the sort of uh, layman's Italian, the, the common vernacular. Right. Not in the, the Latin of the time. Right. I'm, I'm getting to the people and to talk to the people and reference things that maybe they know and things that are important in their own time, I think is perfectly fine for work. And this happens in this book as well. We're going to meet characters that, you know, you might think they have lasting sort of uh, cultural power because they were major forces in history or, you know, their their stories are well known. But in the grand scheme of things removed a couple centuries from now, how many of them? Probably none that we meet in this book. I do have to say this. This book is almost 50 years old. Right. And I think even now, like if we were to talk to some Zoomers, like tell me what you know about Benito Mussolini. Right. You know what I mean? Or like Billy the Kid. I, is think, that, I think Billy the Kid holds up. They might up. know the name. Billy the Kid holds up, I think. I, I would like to, that would be an interesting like talk to the passerby in the street. Like tell me what you know about Billy the Kid. Because I, I imagine it wouldn't be much other than, oh, maybe, I don't know troublemaker and in, in, in he in was the, in the wild, wild west. west right yeah you know um yeah but is there much more you need to know about him in this book well that's the thing it's it's assuming kind of what i just talked about what we talked about with uh christian symbology as well you assume some knowledge on the part of the audience and it, it allows you to just sort of shortcut a lot of exposition or uh place setting and get right to like you know billy the kid even if you don't know much you know he's this kind of character and now here he is and he's doing stuff that kind of would sync up with what you know about him and right. we're in it you know, um, and it works for us in this time, in this era. But, you know, give it another few generations. It won't anymore. I would imagine. I don't think that's a story that's going to stand the test of time. I, I don't know. Especially outside of America. Right. That's an American figure. I would definitely, be curious to know. definitely outside of America. Right? I think it would, it would be a struggle. I don't know. There, there's part of me who just thinks like, yes, Billy the Kid is infamous, but he's also romantic. Like, there's a romantic aspect mm-hmm. of the character, not, like, in the love interest thing, but in, like, the right, right. The kind of, there is this kind of anti-hero aspect to him that I feel like maybe I just want it to stand the test of time. You know, like, mm. plus, he was in Bill and Ted, man. Him and Socrates. Forget everything I said, right. When, when you get immortalized in The Excellent Adventure, you're, you're there. You're in the annals of history for good. Yeah. It kind of leads into a point I wanted to ask you about where we are jumping the gun uh, a little bit with Billy the Kid and uh, Benito. I mean, spoiler alert, Benny, old Benny boy, Benito is Benito Mussolini. Yeah, we don't even Uh, find that out until fucking what, seven eighths of the way through the book. I mean, we figure it. We figure it out based on character. We figure it out 
Alan does does not <laughs> for a long time. Yeah, our our um, giant giant ego maniacal kind of uh, self involved author figure who thinks he's oh so smart doesn't figure out who Benito is. So just to, I'd like to return to this idea in one second, just to do the quick back of the book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirty yeah. second breakdown of the book. Um, this is a story for those not familiar. Dante wrote the Divine Comedy and specifically Inferno as sort of an exploration of hell. We accompany Dante and his guide, Virgil, the poet Virgil, on their journey through hell down to the depths. And then by the end of it, they escape into purgatory. And that's where that book leaves us. And this sequel of sorts to Dante's Inferno has us following Alan Carpentier. Uh, I want to say, is that the pronunciation we're going for? I figured it was like a play on the Alighieri, right? Sort of an Italian flourish. Maybe. It's actually Alan Carpenter, but he threw an I in there just to dress himself up a little bit, right? I'm not kidding. I worked on pronouncing his last name for a good 20 minutes today, 30 minutes. Just like, (laughs) okay, so Carpenter. Carpentier? No, that can't be right. I thought about that, but then I thought. Carpentier. Yeah. It's just, come on, dude. It's funny because he says like, I, I changed it, you know, when I became an author to make it more interesting, right? Easy to remember. And I'm just thinking, like, I don't know, for me, like, Alan Carpenter, that's a pretty good name. It's pretty good. He, he, he pulled the Joe Dirt. Like, sometimes I add an E to it and I pronounce <laughs> it Dierte, and it sounds pretty good. <laughs> Dierte. Like, <laughs> it is a Joe Dierte. That's what's happening here. So we've got, we've got Alan Carpentier. He's at a sort of sci-fi convention, right, or a sci-fi writer's convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, mixing up with the fans, getting drunk as he is uh, often doing, uh, being kind of egged on and, and bought free drinks by his his fans. And he uh, topples over off a building because of Isaac Asimov. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking loved that point. Like Isaac Asimov walks in the room and everybody forgets that Alan even exists. And right. he's like, well, fuck, I'm just going to yeah. pound half this bottle of rum. And then he chokes on it, <laughs> leans over to clear his throat and falls eight stories. Yeah. And we're this is like I've already we've already blown it on the 32nd. <laughs> yeah, we always do. I'm incapable of doing this. Um, I love any good new sort of description of bad booze. It was like drinking flaming battery acid. There was no pleasure in it. I'd regret this tomorrow. Um, yeah, he would. Just, uh, just a good, good line, you know? Uh, and the bottle was half empty when my gag reflex cut in and spilled used rum into my nose. Like, and, and sinuses. Oh, just uh, anytime you can sort of put me in that awful Yeah, that's a bad sort of scene. That's a bad, a bad scene. It's a bad scene, but it's, it's, it's good writing. That is something we have to say. Before before we get into like the story structure and stuff, this book is written well. Yes, like very well. We have read paced o- well. We have read other books in on on the podcast. We've read other books. This book is written very well. This is doing f- for books for literature to us what uh, Castlevania did for games. Like okay, oh, oh wait, okay, there are good things in this medium. <laughs> ah, okay, I was gonna say like I don't. I don't know if I'd put it on the same level as Castlevania 64 in comparison to Bible adventures, but it is, it's certainly the, it's certainly the best written book. I think we have, we have certainly talked about on the podcast so far. Absolutely. So we are accompanying Alan on his journey through hell and his attempt to escape. And he is immediately accompanied by uh, a character that is referred to by his first name through most of the book. And then eventually we get the revelation. It's Benito Mussolini. 
um, and they go through the layers of hell and meet a lot of different types of sufferers. And we understand, we learn why they're su- how they're suffering and why they're suffering, what crimes they're suffering for. We meet a lot of the denizens of hell, the demons, the different sort of bureaucracies set up. I loved the, hell. I loved the red tape in hell. I can't wait to just we're gonna dive deep into a few of these portions because some of these segments are so good. Um, and then we also pick up along the way Billy the Kid, um, and then a and an astronaut, Jerome Jerry Corbett, and uh, then at the end of it, uh, well, let's let's cover the end when we get there because there's a lot to to talk about with the ending. Yeah, the the end happens real fast, real real quick. It does. So to just return to the the point, because we were on a an idea there for a second, we were talking about the assumed knowledge or the cultural capital of certain figures or symbols, right? Why do you think they chose Benito Mussolini of all people to be our main character's guide through hell? Do you have any ideas on that? Any thoughts? So my thought is that they wanted to uh they wanted to upset expectations for one mm-hmm. right yeah yeah there in the original work we have the poet virgil who is only in hell because he was he lived before the coming of christ correct but he didn't really commit any wrongdoing in his life so he's just sort of stuck there in in limbo i think they chose most mussolini because at the time it was written i think he was a redeemable war criminal to them, maybe? Like, you can't choose Stalin. You can't choose Hitler. Benny even says, like, Stalin killed 10 million peasants. Like, that's, that's mm-hmm. not great. Oh, do you mean during the, the one chapter that's basically just his defensive fascism? Yeah, yeah. His, <laughs> get, basically yeah. his defensive... From the dictator's perspective, right? His, his, yeah. his defensive fascism, but also his uh, understanding of why he was wrong. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's what it was, is that they chose a bad man who they could redeem in fiction through hell. I think that's how the end had to take place. And, you know, obviously we'll get to it, but you had to have someone who belonged in hell. You couldn't do the Virgil thing again of someone who was um, like a unfortunate bystander of belief. You know, like Benito Mussolini knew he was he belonged in hell and he knew what circle he belonged in, Mm -hmm. but they gave us, they gave us a very interesting guide because they made him redeemable. And I don't know necessarily how that makes me feel as a person or as a reader, but it, Mm -hmm. it did make for a lot more narrative tension than I expected to get. Because we know from the beginning he's Benito Mussolini because it fucking says so on the back of the book. With the the strong square jaw and like, okay. The yeah, paunch we, we and everything, kinda... yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know what's happening here. We had a, um, okay, a similar idea then. Uh, and I was curious. I'm, I'm glad to hear your thoughts on that because I was wondering about this. It could have been anybody, right? And then I thought, oh, did they maybe feel they were sort of beholden to having an Italian figure? Considering the original oh, work. Oh, that's interesting. So we got maybe that sort of narrows the scope of who we're allowed to pick. And then, like you said, we need someone who belongs in hell. So then it's like, who are the well-known Italian figures that maybe have cultural capital or like are in the public consciousness to a certain degree in our time? And right, uh, can you really think of many others that would 
have immediate people would immediately recognize and maybe have some idea or or knowledge about other than the infamous dictator, right? And the thing is, you just brought it up, right? This wouldn't have worked with Hitler. You could not have like sort of a, an almost buddy <laughs> journey, a, a buddy comedy with, Adolf, with Hitler. Adolf Hitler. No, right? Unless you're just trying to be like, well, I think there is an aspect of it to that that's just trying to be provocative, right, and sort of controversial. Right. I mean, obviously, to cast Benito Mussolini. Well, I mean, there are moments where the dictator becomes the dictator yet again. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things that happens in this book that I love so very much is that people are basically always hoisted upon their own petards. Mm-hmm. Mussolini is not like he he gets the the what the the gravitas and the leadership vibe that you would expect from. Fuck me, a fascist dictator. But there's also this like interminable sadness with the character that is constantly present. Like if he does mm. the dictator thing, if he shows that level of power and um, like commandeers a social interaction. As soon as it's over, his shoulders slump and he gets sad and he's just tired. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that is a very, very interesting thing. And I. I didn't even think about the idea of choosing like purely choosing an Italian for the Dante aspect. I was just looking at basically people we know are bad or were bad when they were living. Sure. Yeah, I guess I couldn't help wondering, thinking like, because it could be anybody, like just the number of people you could see popping up in hell and being suited to the role of a guide through hell. I, you know, I wouldn't immediately think about picking Benito Mussolini, right? Of all the people you could possibly pick and hope to reform and maybe bring the audience around to sort of feeling some investment in, you know? Right. Uh, there are characters that would not be as much of a leap as him. I thought about that, and I thought about the fact that we all recognize, okay, bad dictator. On the, on the wrong side of that, <laughs> the Second World War, most of us would agree. And yet his crimes maybe aren't as well known, right? Right. It's like maybe, again, to go to like to the passerby in the street, like, what do you know about Billy the Kid? What do you know about Mussolini? It's like, oh, bad guy, buddy with Hitler. Invented fascism, maybe. Right? And it's like if you are a Libyan, if you are an Ethiopian, if you are aware of his, the genocide that they committed in that era, um, you got thoughts on him. But for a lot of a lot of us, right? His crimes are not as synonymous as the Holocaust would be with Hitler, right? Correct. One and the same. There's some distance. There's a, there's a knowledge gap there, which I think allows them an opening to sort of get in there and, and use him as a vehicle for, for what they choose to do with him, right? Right. It's an interesting... It, I, I still don't know how I feel about the choice. They definitely... It's good writing. It's a well-written character, and they pull the, the pathos out of him, and they... You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the thing is like, I would have been disappointed if they just like made Dante the guide, like made Dante the new mm-hmm. Virgil because poet, writer. I'd be disappointed in Dante. What are you doing here? Did you not Dude, learn you know your way your out. <laughs> you have, you wrote the map. You are Rand McNally of hell. Like Jesus. Yeah. Um, but I, I. I don't know. There was a big part of me 
that wanted someone more unintentionally in hell as the guide. But then you have, maybe this is why it is so interesting to me, or or why the Benito Mussolini like characterization and choice kind of worked. You can't have two people, like the, the two main characters, you can't have them both feel victimized, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Alan doesn't know what, well, for one, he doesn't know where the fuck he is because he is so self-involved, but... He's in Inferno Land. Yeah, man, that pissed me the... Mm, we'll get into it in a second. <laughs> uh, yeah. But... You can't have two people who don't think they belong there, right? Like, that would be boring as shit, just two people bitching about the injustice of where they have been put. Instead, you have someone who not only the reader knows should be in hell, but also the character knows he should be as well. Sure. And that is why the choice works for me. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't even mean it didn't work. I, I, I continued to wonder about it throughout, but it does set up opportunities. It also sets up the opportunity when Alan is confronted with knowing his identity and decides to cast him into the, the pit of fire. Right. And then is faced with the fact, like, I have betrayed my benefactor. Um, there wouldn't be any inherent dramatic tension or any weight to that choice if it were a more redeemable or understandable character. The, the whole reason, right, for Alan's betrayal was, oh my God, this whole time I've been my guide, my most trusted compatriot in this journey has been this murderous dictator. And now I'm faced with that. And what do I do about that? How do I maybe navigate that let, situation? Let's hold off on going more deeply into this because I really want to talk about the Bolgia that he is, he is cast into and why that choice was made. Um, but we may need to wait, sure. wait on that a little bit. But let, let's, let's go back into Inferno Land a little bit. Let's get back up in that bottle where uh, where Alan starts out. Because that shit, not not the bottle necessarily. I was bored by that. But yeah, no. his reaction <laughs> to coming out of the bottle said so mm. much about I'm not sure if it said so much about the writers and like their own uh, like self-awareness or if it says something about the way that they perceive. The awareness of humanity in 1976 about religion because alan Carpen carpenter i'm not going to pr try to pronounce it italian because that's not I, no um he does not think he is in hell he is coming up with every fucking possible excuse that he could come up with that is not hell he is cryogenically frozen and people are he's a brain in a vat and people are working to bring him back to all of his fans are waiting for him like the level of delusion the man has is massive mm -hmm. and then he starts to think that it's a theme park despite right despite the fact that uh you know he is in the he's in the vestibule of hell if if anyone is familiar with dante he is he's in the lobby and he's like, hey, you know what? I'll just turn around and run and get over this wall over here. Get out of hell. There we go. Mm -hmm. But space time folds and he can't get any closer to that wall. Well, he seems to put distance between himself and his origin point coming out of the bottle, but never gets any closer to the wall, right? Because right. the return back 
takes him time. Which, to just to say, Benito Mussolini lets him out of the bottle. He's been, like, corked up here for who knows even how long. He's sort of, like, outside of time, just sort of existing in this limbo state for a long time until he's uncorked and let out into the vestibule. And Benito's with him for the, the remainder. I, I struggle with the entire first and into the second segment of this book. Because it's just a delusional, egomaniacal man not facing up to all of the evidence in front of him and his mm-hmm. own his own fallacies, his own weaknesses, his own problems. And that, yeah, that's not for me. It wasn't a super good time to read, but it works well for this book and it is well written. Yeah, we did agree on the the writing quality. I will say in the first part, because for me as well. The first third of this book, I kind of went back and forth. Like, am I? Oh, I don't know if I'm going to like this. And there were exactly. brief moments of like yeah. excitement and intelligence and, and clever turns on. I mean, I look at this kind of like, um, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. And like yeah what yeah, they did yeah. to the Odyssey, right? It's not a replacement for it, but it's like, oh, I kind of wonder how they're going to deal with this next circle of hell, right? And there are some really clever sort of, um, they cleverly defy expectations. I agree. And there is that, but I also think the writing quality, it, it, it kind of lagged in this first part. And just from the outset, the call me Alan Carpentier. It's the name I wrote under and someone will remember it. I was one of the best known science fiction. I mean, we just, that's our introduction. He's and such a dick. Anytime you have the, well, when you have the main character directly, not even just breaking the fourth wall, but just like, hi, this is my name. This is what I do. This is who I am. Like. It reminds me of the kinds of stories I wrote in like sixth grade. Yeah. Where it's like, I'm your main character and this is what I like and this is what I do. I'm like, oh God, is this how we're going to start this book? Thankfully, we get away from that very quickly. Yeah. And it's not a big deal. But at first I was like, man, this is going to get so tedious because this trope when it's like the person who doesn't accept reality and we just have to kind of like sit with, we know what, where we are, we know we're in hell and we got to sit with you as you just continue to deny it for hundreds of pages. But the fact that he was a science fiction writer and his like explanations get so increasingly outlandish. Yeah. Like one of them, he has the idea of like, I'm in a theme park and it's like these intergalactic, like maybe built the forces, cop- builders. capital B builders. Yeah. Capital B builders. Like do the builders have a time camera, physical principles unknown, but to recreate Petrie, they have to be able to photograph the past. So we give them that and the space warping fields and the genetic engineering that created Minos and freed Carpentier from the need to eat or drink or sleep and the weather control and the reducing mass of people in the winds and the engineering technology that built Inferno Land itself. I'm like, I'm actually, I'm here for this because it just gets wackier and wackier as he has to keep doing like more sort of mental gymnastics to sort of maintain the illusion of what's around him. And the fact that his arrogant nature becomes the butt of so many jokes and he is constantly... They have fun with him. They they do end up as having they a, develop him as a character as a lot that and that is that is what made it made that first third be like the first couple of chapters I really struggled with. I was like, I think I may hate the main character of this book and not in a fun like love to hate him, hate to love him sort of thing. I think I just really just don't like him at all. He's just yeah, un, yeah. uninteresting to <laughs> I'm me. With you. Um, but as they kept moving forward and I don't know if this is pushing too far in the first part, but. His plan is to build a fucking glider and fly out. Yeah. And Benito actually says, okay, 
I'll help you build this thing. And after it fails, can you please listen to me? Like, <laughs> it's not, it's not just, um, he's not just a naysayer. He's not just negative. He is hell weary. Like, I have mm, seen mm -hmm. everyone try everything. Please just listen to me. Like, I straight up, man, I know what I'm talking about. I, okay. Yes, we'll we will get the the wood and the rope and the tools and the fabric and have to go to three different circles of hell to do so, which I have to say they're getting the fabric was when the book turned around for me. Everything up to them getting the fabric for the glider. I was a little bored. Yeah, I think it's part of the problem is the first few areas they go through just aren't really all that interesting. Right. And it's like you are sort of beholden to the geography that Dante set out. And it's like we're just sort of almost literally at times wading through because they're wading through so many like just muddy or just, you know, murky areas. Um, wading through that. And it's really that, yeah, when they're soaring on the glider and Jerome, they meet Jerome. He literally just like. No, I mean, the, I mean, when they, when they get the fabric, when they when they go to the first administrative area of hell. When when they basically have to come in and Benito Mussolini puts on his his big boy fascist dictator pants and is like, this is my assistant and he's wearing the same thing as me. This is unacceptable. Also, I have men that are working for me currently that are wearing the wrong things. I need seven of these robes immediately. And he deserves to be in a loincloth because he is my assistant. <laughs> and they're like, oh, shit. This guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah, please take our take everything you need. And as they're walking away, Mussolini's like, they know I lied. But they're afraid that maybe I didn't. So we need to get the fuck out of here ASAP. That's whenever I was like, oh, my yeah. God, there's depth. There's so much more depth mm. here than I expected. That little scene of subterfuge was so wrought with tension and so well done. Mm hmm. And then Alan actually has a moment of real intelligence. I think the first one in the entire book where he's he's talking about uh, what Hammurabi's secretary. Who is the, the mm -hmm. main record keeper in this area for all the costumes and stuff, and he's been trying to go to retirement for centuries, but he has to write <laughs> all of his shit in uh, cuneiform and it's too hot. <laughs> yeah. So he can't finish his clay tablets in time before they dry too hard for him to finish them. So Alan's like, where does he put them all? And so he basically finds a sandbar that's made of discarded clay tablets and it lets them ford the river back. Like, mm -hmm. that is so incredibly well done, giving us the tension, letting Alan redeem mm -hmm. himself a little bit from being such a little shit that's that's when the book turned for me into something so much more than what i thought it was going to be i feel that um yeah i i love that scene too um i guess what i meant was the glider scene from then on i was in completely like it there were still a couple sections that you know that didn't quite hit for me sure i think that was the major turning point but that's not to say that before that there weren't some fantastic uh, happenings or like encounters or, or sections. Uh, that's one of them. I I like even earlier meeting Minos. That was fine. Big giant bovine 
yeah, it's a fun, you know, the Judge of the Dead. And he's got this sort of like infinitely long tail and he's just sort of flinging them off to different sections of hell. For me, it was the it was the first real example of of Benito being Benito and being like, you know, Minos being like, you're back here again. What are you doing? And Benito just looking at him being like, it has been willed for me to do so. You have no power to stop me. Looking at what is probably the second most powerful figure in hell. Well, maybe third. You've got God, Lucifer, and then and then Minos. But I mean, Minos is able to basically, if you do something that would cause you to be in a circle of hell, Minos's tail will show up and fucking yank your ass back to where you belong. Out of nowhere, he gets uh, he gets Billy the Kid. Yeah, later on. That's a cool moment. The danger in a, in a tale like this, in a sort of linear journey. Tale, really? Where I it's just, more about... I just said tale. <laughs> God damn it, Brandon. Come on. That's right. It was right there. Uh, um, you could have said yarn, story, anything other than tale. Odyssey. Yeah. Is that sometimes it's the danger of we're so focused on like, okay, what's the next encounter? And then the one after that. And it's sort of a, a series of self-contained encounters that you kind of lose sight of an overarching or an overarching plot or yeah there's not as many like sinews and like things tethering them all together but this one does it well you are constantly reminded of hell's geography and the interconnectedness of it all because right minus's tail shows up or you have a character we steal some tools from a from a character over here to build the glider and then later on she's at the the place the with office, the fabric trying to yeah. fill out forms to, to replace her tools right and just it does that so well yeah and then then we get to the the lovely flight uh, glider flight and and the meeting of of jerry corbett yeah i think he's just a an immediately engaging interesting character likable that brings like he likable that's the word we and haven't seen we haven't seen yet. any of those characters <laughs> any character that is and and you know him and billy the kid both are both incredibly likable characters in hell yes they're the only two and and in jerome's case i I don't know how much you know he's maybe obscuring what he actually did in his mortal life but well he was just he was just lustful right just yeah lustful kind of like a flanderer yeah but no like serious crimes at least not compared to like the rest of the cast (laughs) yeah well let's completely different Maybe this is a maybe this is a, an interesting way to go through it. Let's also talk about with Jerry. Like, let's talk about his his full like run through because he had some wild shit. Jerry, like, he takes over the glider, lets them know that he used to be a pilot. The glider crashes and stuff. He tells us that he's a philanderer and stuff, or that he um, women liked him. I think is what he said. That's how he puts it. Yes, yes. And he kind of like winks as he says that, right? With just a, a boyish charm. Later on, we get to the deeper circles of hell involving the seducers and the rapists and things like that. And Benito implies, like, have you ever drugged a woman or giving her, given her too many drinks or this, that, the other? And again, likable, likable Jerry Corbett. Why would I need to do that? Like, I've, I've never needed to. And then come to find out, like, he was actually seduced into that lifestyle by someone. Mm-hmm. Like, we find someone in the, in the seducer's 
uh, Bolgia, right? Who basically made him what he was, kind of, and he still questions if he should go back to her or not. Like mm-hmm. the depth they put in a tertiary character through that is so 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 good. I agree. Going, I mean, the entire time his 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 sin is pride. Like, mm. I I think that is the point that we're supposed to get from him is not that he was lustful, even though that is the circle of hell that he was sent to. It's that he was prideful. He was the only example of pride that we saw. And doesn't Benito? Someone states it outright, right? I'm yeah, his his pride was the reason he's sent back. Yeah, yeah. Where he just actually of his own accord says, "I yeah. cannot take it down here. I don't belong here. I'm going back to my circle of hell. Yeah, this is too much. This is too much. This is not my scene." It's easy to, there's some just great moments, and that's one, right? And that's for me. Like I said, when the book really got going was the glider ride. But I don't want to, it's easy to forget. There are so many just small little snapshots along the way. And I just want to highlight two that happened just before the glider scene. Because they're, again, we just keep talking about like fun or interesting ways to sort of play with expectations or conceptions about certain sins right one being gluttony right if we would probably it would be easy to just lapse into cliches throughout this entire book what what do we expect in in the gluttony ring okay people overeating oh right? god that is but a we pretty get good scene jan petrie the health nut yeah right? and he's so just livid still like i did everything right i exercised all the time i just ate greens and whatever what am i doing here and you know and he says I'm no glutton, at which Benito shakes his head very sadly. Gluttony is too much attention to the things of the earth, especially in the matter of diet. It is the obsession that matters, not the quantity. Right. Like, oh, that's, that's a very good line. It's a very clever take on that concept. There's that one, and then there's my personal favorite. When they run into the hoarders and the misers, and they meet Alistair Toomey, the book collector. Oh, God, that was so good. It's so good, right? Um, basically, Alan has heard of Alistair Toomey. Everyone who is, a, who is a book collector has heard of Alistair Toomey. To their rage and sorrow, he had spent a considerable inheritance on books, all kinds of books. And much of what he owned had been unique and irreplaceable. And he'd kept them all in a huge barn that he managed to hang on to somehow. Because he spent all of his money on books, there was no money left to take care of them. So they moldered in the barn. Rats and insects got into them. Rain dripped through the roof. If he'd just sold a few of them, he would have been able to take care of the rest. But he didn't. And then they just, like, Alan confronts him, like, uh, <laughs> I guess I don't have to ask why you're here. In which he says, I was both a, a hoarder and a waster. He, like, recognizes it, right? And he just, like, keeps talking to himself as they leave, like, but what could I, what could I have sold? Not the complete analog collection. Not the Alice in Wonderland. It was autographed. Autographed. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's, it's, it's very, it's very a great good interaction, a great scene. And I will get into this, I guess, when we decide whether we want to source this or not. But it's not a replacement for Dante by any stretch. You would have to just read that. To, and I don't even know if I recommend that you do. I guess it would just really depend on how invested you are in really seeking out the classics of literature and working through the canon. But if you're just interested in like kind of getting a sense of what each circle is like and a very good encapsulation of certain sins and things that are being punished in hell. 
these do it so well. Yeah, this this does a great you have job. Genuine. Yeah, that's just such a self-contained what a page of interaction and, and dialogue, and just a well-described. I mean, just to encapsulate. I the think idea of hoarding. I think that's where that's where this book took off for me. And I mean that both literally and figuratively because the glider is, is basically when it starts. But the book after the glider and its crash becomes a series of vignettes describing what the punishment is for its connected sin and how that is going to affect our characters. Like, we do not see a single sin that doesn't in some way mentally affect a character and that is very fascinating and very well Mm -hmm. written and very well done so let's let's get into that because it's there's a bunch i mean so basically like yeah we get the glider crash right as benito knew expected they try and like ride these updrafts the thermals from the heat and get over the only only reason i knew what a thermal was anamorphs (laughs) okay I just this, this kind of thing immediately makes sense to me as a gamer because so many games make use of this, right? Right. Like yeah. having some glider mechanism above you and, and looking for the the big swirling thermals updrafts catching those. Um, they all get really fucked up from the crash. That's another thing in hell. Oh right, you yeah. Heal. You always heal. You do heal quickly, but you they get they get some grisly. This, this book gets a little grisly at times. It's very gory with some of the injuries they sustain and some of the tortures that we see and just you always heal so that you're ready for another bout of pain. Well, they also talk about how some people heal faster than others, which is mm-hmm. never clarified as to why. I assume it's in the sequel. Um, when the glider crashes, they are approaching Deese, right? Mm-hmm. The red hot, uh, the red hot gates and the, the burning tombs for I think the heretics. That's what we're dealing mm-hmm. with here, and I I just I loved the fact that the heretics like they walk up to one of the tombs and a ghost pops out and is like, I uh, I was buried in a green place by this one place doing the thing, completely still non-believing that they are in hell. I thought that was very yeah. very clever and interesting. Speaking of the tombs, yeah. What is there beef with Vonnegut? Dude, I laughed so fucking hard because that shows up at the what the end of a page. You see the first the first version of So It Goes. They're wandering through the maze of tombs and they see a, a, a blinking yeah. tomb. So it goes. So it goes. And I'm just like immediately like, oh, I know who this is. The last three lines of page 111 are just so it goes. So it goes. So it goes. And I'm like, fuck me. They're mm-hmm. going to make fun of Vonnegut. You can't make fun of Vonnegut. <laughs> And they lambast the fuck out of him. <laughs> they destroy him. And I'm like, oh, my God, I kind of want his writing, but his, his, his illustrations, all of it. And I was like, man, I love on everything. Though. Yeah, they, they make a point. Is it because. Is this because I was looking into this, like, is there something more to this? And I don't know if this is what was going on with, with the two authors of this book, but there seems to be. In certain circles, a lot of science fiction authors sort of had a problem with how much Vonnegut tried to distance himself from the genre. And Right. Vonnegut wrote literature. He did not write sci-fi. Yeah. And a lot of his stuff, I would call it sci-fi. He wouldn't. And maybe 
they had a problem with that. I don't know if that's a part of it. Um, which I, I completely understand why he would do that, especially like when he was coming up, right? Like, oh, I don't want to be pigeonholed as you know one of those, like well, I th- because I think, people didn't respect the genre. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he considered anything he wrote as genre fiction because it incompa- it right. like encompassed so many genres. Like sure. Sirens of Titan takes place in space, but I don't consider it necessarily a space opera or science fiction book. It's not about the space. It's about the people. Yeah, I just mean it, you can make a case because if, if not him, then you could probably strike a, a lot of other works off the list that sure. we would probably. But it's not even you know important to me in that aspect of it. I was just curious what's going on here. Are they just, I don't know. They went at him. They went <laughs> at him to make hard. The heretical nature of him wasn't because it was because he invented his own religions. That was a, yeah. It, the, that that, that was scene thing, was too. was really really interesting. Um, it made me do a double take because I was like, so it goes. I know what this is, but then for a second, like, oh, are we doing something with like L. Ron Hubbard or something? Because like, okay, that makes more sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Vonnie yeah, down me here. too. But yeah, go after diet Dianetics. Don't go after fucking Slaughterhouse Five, please. It was just like again with the like same thing with Mussolini. It's like. Could have been anybody. Could have done anything with this opportunity. And we don't have a lot of this. Like, um, we don't have, a, like, we have historical figures, but not, like, contemporary. I mean, a, a contemporary author <laughs> putting him down here, well, you know? My thing to was, these two. was he even dead in 76? He died in 2007. Yeah, and they're just like, well, that's what, that's what I'm talking about. Like contemporary author that's still working. And- they're like, well, we got a tomb waiting for him in hell, motherfucker. You're you're going down real hard, so it goes. I I don't know. Uh, that was that was very interesting, and I I laughed I laughed really hard. But yeah, we get the, we get the tombs, and then we get this is there are a couple um truly nightmarish areas. In this book, I mean, the whole thing is hell, but some of them really wait, wait, stand out. Okay, I'm I'm excited for this. Go ahead, I'm I'm very it's excited the, to see which one hits you first. Lake of Boiling Blood, where they meet Billy the Kid, the violent. It's all these people just like boiling alive. Well, they're waist deep in this lake of blood, oh, and they God, are that's, surrounded. That's not the worst part, though, for me. No, we're getting yeah, but everyone. So they are corralled into this lake. The shore is lined with guards pulled out of every historical era and armed with weaponry from every historical era. And every time they try and get up on the shore, they're just like mowed down, like severed at the waist. They just like flop down into the the blood and boil until they heal. And they just try it again. And then in the middle of the lake, which to Alan looks like an island and is an island. It is an island. It is a mass of humanity. And just you have this constant raging battle of everyone trying to get up on the top of this island of humans oh. and then the ones that are up there trying to maintain their their spot is, is that what on said island. is that what it okay i misunderstood i guess because oh, oh. based on billy's Maybe? description the island yeah. the island was judges and lawyers right and they would pop out and the people on the island it was their job to beat the fuck out of them and put them back in the ground. Getting higher on the island, I didn't think meant anything. I thought the island was just punishment for the people who put violent people back on the street. And so they put 
like the stronger violent folk who were willing to kill on the island to take care of to to basically constantly batter and send these people back into the ground of the island. Well, what I was saying, like everyone who's coming out of the lake was trying to get on the island, right? And they were fighting over no getting on top, right? No, I don't think so. Did I miss? Did I misunderstand that? I thought it were was they not getting up on top of this island of people. I thought okay, so I thought the island was made of lawyers and judges and stuff, right? Yeah, they made the landmass. The people yeah. on the island were separate from the landmass. The people right. on That's what the, I mean. the people on the island were the violent. But I took it as you could make your way out of the lake of blood onto the island. If you were willing to kill. If someone gave up their... Right. That's what I mean. Because Billy gives up his spot. So that's what I meant in terms of you have this constant sort of raging, fighting over getting up, keeping someone off, keeping your spot on the island. Oh, see, so, so my understanding of it was that, and, and this comes into play much later on in the story, the island was for the worst of the perpetrators. It wasn't, it wasn't a reprieve. It was for the most violent because they were choosing to continue to constantly be violent. The boiling blood, you were, you were punishing yourself for what you had done. Right. But I guess I took it as like someone, you would rather not be boiling in the blood. It required something out of you to stay there. And that's what, why Billy turns away. Like, I can't do it anymore. But there would have to be some incentive to do it. Right. Well, the, the incentive like, to do it is if you're a violent person. Right. But what I mean is it does offer a reprieve in that you're not waist deep in boiling blood. Right. You're standing on top of an island of people that they keep you out of the blood. So, right. It's like there's an incentive to be there because it's a reprieve from the physical pain. But what it requires of you, which Billy can no longer do. Is, is you have to constantly inflict that pain on others, which right. I, I agree with what you mean. Like it's a worse sort of punishment from that. But if you aren't, if you don't have empathy, if you are that sort of violent, awful kind of person, maybe you don't even recognize, you just see it as the self-serving reprieve can, from. Can we go ahead and, and stick a flag in this one and make it a callback? Because we will definitely sure. need to reapproach this when we talk about the very end of the book. Okay. Actually, I mean, this, there are a couple moments here. Sometimes you can sort of divine like the authorial, I don't know, like worldview or politics. Right. They're, just the, based their, on their voice coming through. They're just cer certain things. Yeah. Little things. This is one. And there are a few that stood out to me. There's a big one coming. But this was the first one that I just sort of, I just noticed. And the fact is, it specifically references that the island is made of people, mostly lawyers and judges and crooked sheriffs and, and whatnot. Right. And all the examples of, of how they were crooked was letting felons back out onto the streets, letting violent criminals go. And there's no example of uh, imprisoning an innocent person or, you know what I mean, like using the law against your political enemies or some other things that could be done with people in that position. It was all from this side of it. And it's a different way of thinking about the problems with a criminal justice system, right? Like my knee jerk based on the system we have in our country, not to get too deep into this, right? Sure. And I think a lot of us in this current age would say, like, what is the biggest problem you're seeing right now? And it's like, well, maybe we see a lot of people that don't belong in a cage currently in a cage. And this is a, the inverse of that, where, you no, know, the biggest problem that I could see, like the, the example, their, their go-to example for how a crooked lawyer or judge could end up here would be 
to let someone go free that actually was guilty. And not to say that's not a, a crime or a problem. It's just it's interesting to see that and to see all of one and none of the other. Right. Well, I think that's if you're talking that's about a, a systemic problem. That's a really big problem with this book in, in general and problem with Dante. We get to it a little bit later, like one of the biggest problem, like one of the last circles of hell is selling a priesthood mm-hmm. like. No. No, it's not. <laughs> right. It's it's really not. Um and uh, again, the, the I, geography I, is an issue. Yeah. I could very much at times, you know, like that's that's me saying this as as a less as a less religious person. Other people may have a completely different take on like that that sort of thing, but damn. Like I I I see what you're saying and it it is a wild uh, there is a wild contradiction in, sure, in uh, the the crime versus the punishment. That's true. There is that they are beholden to Dante's geography. The way they deal with that often very well is they have the characters comment on it. Like, why are these people here? Like, why? At one point, Benito has to actually say, like, oh, this is a crime that's not so common anymore. But there was a time where people showed how wealthy they were by. Having a party basically and, and burning, burning their money, money burning their in the, in the, just to show they what, could do in it. the wood of suicides, right? I think. Um, yeah. So there's that. Um, so you do have the pushback from the the characters on certain things, um, but but then the authors then the authors fuck with you because you get pushback from the characters, and then come to find out the person belongs in that circle anyway. Like you never have pushback from the characters, and then it comes back, and they're like. No, yes, this person really is innocent. Why is he here at all? No, it comes back with like, oh, I found these letters in your bicycle in the fucking wood of suicides, and you knew that these power plants were going to hurt all of these people if you shut them down. Like, oh, you obviously belong here. Like, there's that's never another. That's there's the never an instance of injustice that the characters see, which sucks. But it point. also makes sense because they're going with the whole God is infallible thing. And that that is something that that keeps striking Alan over and over again. Like he is looking for a mistake. He is looking mm-hmm. for uh, he keeps saying our God like in Latin, our God is a cruel God. Like he is looking for cruelty. He is looking. Yes. I mean, Lucifer even says it at the end that we'll get to. Like, what are you going to say to God? But like, I just, you have to, you, you follow the geography of Dante and that, that hurts a little bit. It's a good point. You know, I did say you get the pushback from the characters and they do that well, but uh, I, there are also places where it's not done well and where I had a genuine issue with it. And it comes up, I mean, to jump a little bit ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Just being on the topic, there is one circle of hell when they get the car and they're driving out across these like hot sands, this hellish sandy landscape, and they see the clusters of souls dancing, and they're in hell for unnatural love, and it's, oh, there's just people are out here because they're gay. They get the car in the wood of suicides, and then they go deeper into hell, into this flaming desert that is, uh, Benito even says, it is so hot that nothing living can stand it. There's like mm-hmm. embers falling from the sky and they'll burn like straight through your skin. Right. 
Yes. And they're like uh, Corbett's driving the car through and uh, Alan is having to manually mess with the, the gas intake because the car is possessed by the wood of the su- wood mm-hmm. of suicides. And they're driving through the desert. And yeah, he says, like, what what are these people here for? And Benito's like unnatural love woman with woman, man with man. You know how it is. And Alan's like, what? This this lady that is constantly on fire is being tortured forever because she's a lesbian, I think, is is actually what he says at one point. Yeah. And he's like, it, it's no surprise to me that God's justice in mind didn't agree. And so you do have him sort of, you know what I mean, pushing back on that. But you nailed it a minute ago. And it's this is the problem with this. It's an outlier because to give it this much credit, at least. There's no additional like, oh, but yeah, they deserve to be here. Right. The problem is, right. Every other vignette we've seen on the back side of it, like, but actually they kind of, I mean, they belong here, right? It's always like, oh, their papers, you actually knew what was up with these power plants or, oh, you thought, you know, you were being healthy, but like you were so addicted to being healthy and that was the problem. There's always some additional like, and that's why you're here and that's why they're here. And in this one, it's just gay people should be punished and that's absolute fucking dog shit. Now, I will say, the Frank aspect of it, Frank was the guy who jumps on the car and basically, like, threatens Corbett, right? He's the Hell's Angel mm-hmm. who basically just, yeah. he even says, like, men, women, we just, we had a swinging good time, whatever. But he basically threatens to kill everyone. Like, until Billy wakes up. It, it's not just that mm-hmm. he he was an unnatural lover which god i hate say i don't like saying it i don't like this part of the book much like there were some interesting tense scenes but it was very uncomfortable because it just seems so (sighs) seventies like late seventies early eighties kind of like gay people are evil I, I just I didn't like it um but I I understand that he was being punished for the unnatural love thing in that circle, but he was also just a bad guy. And and again, we get to this much further after we get past the bulges and we'll we'll come back to this a little bit for just a moment. But yeah, this this was the first area of hell where I was like, okay, this this one is not as well written or as clear cut as it could be. But Let's move past it because I I do want to come back to it very, very briefly at the end. Um, we jump right into the bulges, right? Because they, they meet Gary on mm-hmm. and he takes them to the bulges. We mm-hmm. start we start hitting the, the real dark parts of hell. So let's let's kind of let's kind of mow through these vignette by vignette. Oh, do you mow through them when everyone's wading through duty water? Yeah, I was going to say, do you have any 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 favorites, any? I mean, you you mentioned it before. This is another one. Like, you got the the advertisers down below the rapists. <laughs> but again, so, you're just. I was gonna say they. It wasn't for me. It wasn't just the advertisers. They, he called them seducers, right? Flatterers. No, the 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 seducers were getting whipped constantly. That was where we get Jerry Corbett's former lover, the flatterers. With the, the second anus, right? With the second anus as the shit, mouth. Literally. They're talking shit constantly. Um, yeah. That's a, it's a funny scene, though. They're like it's a, a very funny scene. Down in the just... how, 
I can see how much damage a flatterer in power could do. We have seen it in politics a lot. Someone who just uh-huh. yes ands constantly, uh-huh. causing causing widespread destruction, despair, death, like flattering someone so much or or giving so someone so much leeway that they become more evil than they are i i don't know i i don't think it's yeah it's it's, i'm with you it's not it certainly should have gone uh up several circles uh it certainly shouldn't be in the same conversation as like rapists but man yeah i agree and also those aren't the examples they use again they use advertisers they, they make yeah. choices they're up above on this bridge everyone else is down in the shit and they hear this just explosion of voices rising up to them just uh the wethead is dead aren't you glad you used dial don't you wish everybody did i'm glenda fly me hazel it turned blue always have always will you know and they're just like it's all like commercial taglines and stuff and it's like that's supposed to encapsulate what they did you know, that was so horrible, like to get people to buy products they didn't I need. I was frustrated at that because I wanted to see an Iago. Yeah, some of these are more like I wanted a Jafar. Too jokey, maybe. I don't know. Like I wanted yeah. I wanted an evil counselor. Not uh, fucking, you know, ShamWow and it's dry or but wait, there's more sort of thing. Like, I, no, yeah. that's no, no, I don't like that. Like, God, um, imagining if every person in marketing went to hell for doing their job, like just because you make a good tagline doesn't necessarily mean that you're lying to the public. Yeah. Again, we just we keep coming back to the inherent sort of contradiction or just problem of you're beholden to this geography. Yeah, this is the the sequence of layers that you have going through hell, but you're trying to treat each of like specific layer, like from the author's perspective, what can I do with this? How can I do, how can I make this interesting or funny? Is it going to be a, a jokier segment? Is it going to have some, am I going to turn just, it on its head? I'm surprised they but tried to do make that, it funnier. It just seems such that's a the thing. When you weird do that, thing. If you're, maybe some of them do lend themselves to be more jokey than others, right? I, I think this is a funny turn on on the concept of flattery and like having these advertisers literally talking shit and you know it's just like a self-contained funny thing but the thing is it it in the context of it like we've gotten like serious we've gotten like we've had layers of hell where we're treating them more like these people deserve to be there this is like a an apt punishment and so right it goes back and forth it tries to do both at the same time and it just gets a little messy in some of these areas literally this one just it felt it felt like a part of the book that should have been in the first part of the book right but they needed a comedic break because it got so dark at the end of the book it was just it was just plugged in like i understand that we're Mm. going by dante's uh geography and, and that is questionable at best but even the punishment of having an ass for a mouth is not being constantly burned alive or Constantly killed yeah. and then re-killed and then re-killed for eternity. Like instead, you're just talking shit. Like I, I don't I didn't understand right. the placement of this one. And I guess I just I, I found myself wondering like like this to me felt like it belonged up near the front end where like when we're getting to the bureaucracy and they're 
filling out, you know, nine pages of forms. And then it's like, why do we have to fill out all these forms for the same thing? And they're all like every form is a is a different sort of it's a remixed copy of the formal. And one of them just says destroy. And they literally have to fill it out and you just toss it, toss it in the wastebasket and it, you know, explodes. And it felt like something like it felt like Gilliam's Brazil, a favorite film of mine, just like yeah. a nightmarish, funny take on horrific bureaucracy. And if it was up there around that, like I wouldn't even be, you know, I wouldn't have batted an eye at this. Yeah. But would would there have been too much comedy in that part? Well, that's the thing. Like, again, it's just there's all these sort of conflicts. And I, I guess I admire it, like, as someone who's dabbled in a bit of writing. It's a, it's a huge challenge that they've taken on to try and keep it consistent with the source material that they're sequelizing, um, but then sort of do their own spin on it. Like, have a sense of pacing so you're not too front-heavy on the humor and too back-heavy on the, the horror, right? It, it, like, it's paced well. It just comes, it runs into these problem areas i think right because of that i don't i don't know that there's any getting around it i don't think there is no i mean it like again i i like i like stuff with rough edges in my entertainment i do sure i mean the conversation we're having now right there's just so much to like talk about talk through and yeah trying to understand from both like what the authors are trying to do with this and like what it is as a reader experience so i don't know there was that one i like the idea of they he meets his former teacher alan does Oh right! She's down there, like she's a she's a witch. She's a prophet. She rode off, so she had kids with learning disabilities, basically, and she just sort of wrote down they had dyslexia and moved them along and didn't really properly teach them. And it's this idea of like, oh, in educationese, this is basically the equivalent of witchcraft. You have conjured up a new future state of being for these children based on your negligence. Yeah, I thought I thought you that was gonna hit you pretty. I thought that one was gonna curse. hit you. When I when I read that, I was yeah, like, got me as a Brand, teacher. Yeah, Brandon's uh, gonna have something to say about this one. Yeah, yeah that, not, that yeah, one just, hurt. It it stood out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, a very clever spin on the idea of witchcraft. Um, one note: we just we talked about Alan like being a kind of a dickhead, kind of. Um, he is, and how they they have fun with that and. When he meets his teacher, I, I just thought this was a funny interaction. You know, he's just sort of uh, really dismayed about seeing his teacher in this condition. Like, she doesn't deserve to be here. She didn't really do anything all that bad. And um, this, I mean, Billy's still with him at this point, And he's kind of horrified that, you know, Alan is criticizing God. And asks him, how would you implement your judgment on God himself? To which Alan says, by withholding my worship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Benito, do you realize that the God you worship keeps a private torture chamber? Hardly private. Private or public, the God Alan Carpentier worships will have to meet higher standards than that. Yeah. It's just well-written characters. The ego yeah. of faith-based deities, right? Yeah. That's something that he really kind of wants to weaponize. Uh, so going going from there... We got what the the thieves are so that's just it, it's it's cinematic, but there's not much not much there. They just bite each other and take each other's shapes and turn into snakes and lizards. Neat. Yeah, I guess just before that, they let's get the pitchfork, right? Yeah. So that moment they they have this pit of giant demons who actually for the first time I actually have the the pitchfork, right? The right. sort of um, the archetype of the, the hellish demon. 
flaying them alive, just really nasty stuff here, and they all sort of like make a break for it, topple one over, and uh, Billy kind of hangs back to get the pitchfork to go in for the kill for whatever reason, and they all sort of swarm on him and get him as Alan and uh, Benito escape and fall down a cliff and get smashed at the bottom and just lie there healing. And then this is, again, where we see, we mentioned it earlier, the Minos tail comes in. And grabs and Billy, grabs Billy and, we and see pulls him, him back up. to the boiling blood. Assumedly. Yep. But some of these environments, I mean, this is a, a cool environment where we go into next. Um, we have, like, all these big, just, like, giant ruined bridges. And we're told about how, after being crucified, Christ came down here and tore down the great... It's very cinematic. The Great Gate, and yeah, it is cinematic. It's it's well written. Um, we've already talked about Benito's fascism thing, and and old old boy Alan tossing him in the in the pit to become a fire again. And honestly, that that scene was less than I thought it was going to be. Like, it, he he gets mm-hmm. thrown into the into the pit of what uh what bad counselors is that what no not bad counselors maybe that's what it was. I'm trying to remember the exact name, but right. Basically, he hears these voices. They're like British soldiers hollering up, like, oh, I firebombed Dresden. If I'm down here, you better get Mussolini down here. Yeah. Are you an American? He can, like, hear Alan's accents. Like, you're an American. You should be throwing him down here with us. He uses the, he uses the, the Italian World War II slang toward Mussolini. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, it was just, yeah, it was fine. And after that, the next section is is what I was talking about with the the buying buying uh titles, buying buying priesthoods and stuff. Or selling selling mm-hmm. your priesthoods and stuff. And they're they're given like giant heavy metal robes. They become statues almost, and they're basically trying to have to shuffle their way constantly. Mm-hmm. So Alan climbs out. He finds a wide, empty, rocky area there, just sort of chills for a little bit. Wonders about what he's just done. He's already kind of feeling some pangs of guilt, even though he like, was so shocked at finding out the identity of his compatriot. He wonders about like, what this space is going to be. There's no one here. Why, why am I not seeing any, like, anybody being tortured? And it's a cool idea. He wonders, like, is this preserved for future sins? Sins that we aren't even aware of yet that would arise in a, in a later time in a later age, based on conditions that that world might bring to light, right? And uh, we get some nice... I, I liked this bit of internal monologue. This was another... Like Twilight, I was also reading this on a Kindle. We get to see what other readers enjoyed. This was one that was highlighted that also caught my attention. God had created human souls. Could he not uncreate the failures? God had created sleep. Could he not put the failures to sleep forever? There were no good excuses for hell. I thought of some unsettling bad ones. The universe would fly off its axis if hell's agony did not balance heaven's bliss. Or, part of heaven's bliss was the knowledge that lots of nasty people were suffering terribly. Or, the old standby, we were in the hands of infinite power and infinite sadism. And this is the moment, this is the turn where Alan's like, I'm in hell. Yeah. This is not inferno land. Yeah. And it's this, it's from this, this is the turn where I finally start to care about Alan because we start to see the deeper dimensions of his character. For me, it was when he was actually concerned about his teacher. It was the first time I, I saw, and, and a little lesser, whenever Billy got horribly hurt and he went back for Billy to put him in the car. 
Like we can't leave him That's behind. True. All That's of a sudden, you have yeah. a you have a selfless moment for a selfish character, and that makes me that makes me like him a little bit. But this was yeah. this was the moment where he becomes aware. Yeah, I guess maybe this is the moment where the balance really starts to shift. We've had some moments of heroism and courage from him thus far, but it's been in the midst of his constant just running mouth. <laughs> like, yeah. He, you know, him being a little shit. Just, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is when like, he's finally accepted it. Like, Oh, I'm here. I'm here for a reason. Uh, he's like grappling with what he's done. And it's where we just, the balance of his actions from here on out is all right. He's actually a, a courageous at times selfless character, right? Yeah, he becomes he becomes a hero- heroic character, which is surprising as yeah. fuck to me. This is a, this is a very well written. This moment got me. It's he he's walking on, he sees what look like towers in the distance. Yep. Upon getting closer, he realizes they're giants waist deep in the earth, chained up. He sees the wall, he sees the way into the next frozen landscape. And he knows that beyond that is the circle of traitors, the place of punishment for those who betrayed their benefactors. He thought about it for a long time, and then he turned and started back. It's like, oh yeah, he is faced now, and it's a moment of like tension, like, is he going to hop that wall? Has this been a ruse all along? Has he been sort of unwittingly like heading towards his true punishment? Right. He hadn't even committed the greatest sin of his life yet. He committed it here in hell. And now he's going to be punished for that sin. And it was a sin that was done on the journey towards escape. I thought that was a really interesting. Well, this is this is something that Benito's been talking about the entire fucking book, right? Like he has been saying the entire thing. Mm -hmm. You won't be ready until you've confronted every evil. Like Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. like when when Jerome or when Jerry lets his pride take him and goes back, Benito says he wasn't ready. When Billy does the pitchfork thing and Minos's tail shows up and grabs him and takes him back, Benito says he hasn't confronted everything he needs to confront yet. Like, that is the thing. Mm-hmm. And this is what Alan is doing his damnedest to do, is confront his own shortcomings. And so he goes back for, for Benny. And in doing so, does some wild and crazy shit that I, like, there's not a lot to say about it. Like, there's not a lot to, like... It's it's really quick in the book, so I don't I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time on it, and also because we're not doing torture porn. <laughs> yeah, the, they're pretty the, grisly. The one scene that got me was when he goes back and uh, the devil has a sword and basically plays tic tac toe on his chest and forces yeah. and forces Alan to cut into his own chest to win it tic tac toe to move past him. And Alan does it. Yep. Like, shit, man. All right. Um, Even from the get-go, he, like, steps forward towards the demon, and he gets, like, these vertical slashes, and he it talks about how he has to hold himself, like, bring his arms back to keep his guts in. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't even know what's happening at first. Like, oh, is he just being sliced? And then, like, oh, no, he's being set up to play this game on his own torso. Yeah. Yikes. Uh, so he goes back, brings Benny back up, and they go to the ice. Yeah, he just, he gets, he goes back to where he pushed Benny in, and using a pitchfork, he goes through a number of different possible solutions, lands on the pitchfork, and another just like really, I mean this scene, uh, these two scenes really, 
we're doing a lot of character development very quickly in the span of a couple chapters. Like we've had this major revelation, major turn of character on his part. And now he's just like, yeah, I'll play tic-tac-toe on my own body with cutting into myself with my fingernails. And yes, I will hold this pitchfork down. He like pushes it down into the flames so that Benito can grab hold and get pulled out. And it's so hot. It, it, it describes it really well. It's like, oh, it's, it's getting warm. Now we're at that unbearably hot moment. And then like, oh, my hands are like melting off. They're like becoming blackened and, and he's like smelling himself. And then like he pulls Benito up and he can't even let go of the pitchfork and it just sort of like falls off, taking his hands down with it. This stall. Yeah, he has to regrow his hands effectively. That's a funny scene too. Like he's got like little like nubs. Like it's from Dead, got, like, it's, it's Deadpool. Yeah, it, it is Deadpool. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> so, but yeah, and then they they're back. They kind of return back to where Alan had turned around, right? Right. And so, uh, they go through the ice, and man, I the relationship between Benito and Alan was the only thing interesting to me about the ice. Like, yes, there was some political stuff that went, went on and you know, they, they run into some, some faces. To me, it seemed very like we're making some commentary on contemporaneous politics in the seventies. Yeah, Cause we're talking about like anti-ballistic missile systems and yeah, the Democrat I, and Republican are going back and forth. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't care. Uh, I don't, I don't care about that. <laughs> The only thing I did think was funny was just uh, it happened a couple times, like the joke about Americans. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, I actually had something to say about this, but we've been so fucking lost in the woods a couple of times that I've missed it. But they, they mentioned the fact that Dante sees so many Italians and the Benito even has a moment of pure shock and a little bit of disgust when he's like, well, yeah, whenever I was with what Franz Kafka uh, we saw a lot of Germans. So you, you basically just see the people that you are. You see your self-reflection in hell. Yeah. Sort of thing. I think Billy says that too, right? Like, man seems to recognize his own. Yeah, man seems to recognize point. his own reflection or whatever. Because it, it comes up a couple of times, but here in the ice, it's like, wait, are you American? And he says, aren't we all? I can't seem to find anything but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. I really, really liked this version of Lucifer. This hairy, this giant, hairy, three headed thing. Don't forget the uh, the dong, the size of the Empire State Building. Yes. Testicles like twin astrodomes swinging in the. (laughs) I I remember all of that. Uh, I remember it very well. Yeah. But as as they're climbing down Lucifer to go to. Because that's that's what it is. You climb down Lucifer to get to the hole to bring you up to Purgatory, right? And that's straight out of Dante, where they yeah, literally straight, scale Lucifer's straight, body. Yeah. Straight out of Dante. Climb up. You always assume you always see Lucifer, or he is pictured as the deceiver, right? Like mm-hmm. Lucifer is the 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 prince of lies. The oh, you know how, how everyone is. You you never expect Lucifer to shut up. You assume he's going to tell you whatever he needs to tell you to fuck you up real, real hard. He has mm-hmm. two lines in this book, and they are devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What will you tell God when you see him? Will you tell him that he could learn morality from Vlad the Impaler? And that's it. That's all he has to say to fuck Alan up completely. And to me, this is like a one of the best moments in the book. There are a couple moments in this book that sort of recontextualize everything you've 
seen thus far. And it makes you wonder about Alan's, at that moment, what you think is his forthcoming journey up higher through Purgatory and onto Heaven. Um, spoiler alert, that's not what happens. No. At least not yet. But it made me wonder about Lucifer as the deceiver. It made me wonder about why Alan is being allowed to come this far. He is having a journey of self-discovery and, and repentance, right? But he's still being, like, there are people sort of overseeing hell that could have stopped him. If they really tried, they could have stopped him, right? You have this intelligent, questioning writer who is, because he mentions it many times, like, I'm a science fiction writer. I am taking in everything I'm seeing. I am asking a lot of questions. I'm trying to figure out how this place works. I am curious. And you have him escaping from hell and going on to heaven, potentially. Loaded with all this knowledge, if he were to ascend all the way to heaven, given his opinions, what do you think he's going to say once he gets there to the people in heaven? What do you think he's going to divulge? Is he going to be persuasive to them? Is he going to make a case for or against God and this whole system that's set up, right? Because the fact that he says, what will you tell God when you see him? Will you tell him that he could learn morality from Vlad the Impaler? Alan already would agree that, yes, at this moment, he is seeing the reformed Benito Mussolini. He has gone back and tortured himself in the service of saving Benito from the flames. He has learned that people can be reformed, that they can make up for past evil deeds. So that's that's where that this is that's where our book ends basically right is is not not just with the the quote from the devil is but with Alan saying other people can be saved. And up until now it's been Benito making the trip back and forth shepherding people out and this time he Benito takes Benito's space moves on. He says Benito you have to go up I have to see that someone can get out if I'm going to rescue others. And this mm-hmm. is where I want to go back to both the the blood lake, the boiling blood lake, and the the desert of the unnatural lovers. I hate saying that, but come to find out, in Alan's mind at least, you're in hell not because you were evil. You're in hell because you have chosen to stay in hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that. That's why, like the island in the the boiling lake of blood is the worst punishment because those people have embraced the their the the base sinning instinct that they have they are not getting off that island the people in the blood water those are the people that are trying to atone for their violence and their quote unquote mm-hmm. wicked wickedness those are people you could save right the people in the desert, it's the same sort of thing. Like, the reason uh, the, the, the girl that jumps on the car, the reason she loses it is not because she is afraid of what comes next. She offers her body to get to the next part of hell. And when it becomes the least bit difficult, she actually says, I, I told you I would have given you anything, uh, anything at all. And then just dips out. Maybe this is what it. That is the one part that I still am. I'm struggling with. Like, do do the authors think that, um, the people residing in the the circle of the unnatural lovers that they are are flat like punishing themselves 
Like that that part mm. that part hurt me. Like I I didn't like that. That's that's a that's a very bad thing because society does that enough, I think. Um Sure. But the most of the rest of the circles like these people could leave at any time. Alan and Benito and Billy and Jerry have shown us this. You're you're in your circle because you think you belong to be in the circle. That's the thing about this ending. Like, that's what's communicated. That's what Alan's takeaway seems to be. But then it's like that doesn't really align with the journey we just watched where like. I mean, I guess it we the the characters who didn't make it out. Sure. Like Jerry went back and I guess you could make an argument for like Billy the Kid he succumbed to his own nature, right? He got violent, overly violent. He didn't need to try and take down the, the demon with the pitchfork. He could have moved on with Alan and Benito and maybe escaped, right? Yeah. So it was the fact that he lapsed back into that. But then there's also the fact that, like, it wasn't easy for them to, to get past any number of barriers throughout. But I guess, right, they still managed to do it. Well, I was going to say, like, if, if it was hard, would it be worth it? But the thing is, a lot of it required Benito, didn't it? He got them out of any number of situations. He, they needed a guide. It doesn't seem like a lot of these people could make it out independently on their own. Well, I, I, think, right? I think that's the point where... Uh, that's, that's where Alan turns... That's when Alan turns around to go get Benito back. He makes it through three of the Bolgias by himself. It's just so much harder that's to true. do it by himself. That's true. He talks about how how like Benito was a was a guiding force and and could help him through the more difficult areas. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why he is willing to go back and save more people, which that's how the book ends is him wanting to go back and save more people. But because now he knows the ins and the outs, he's watched Benito do it with him. He knows the things that works and the things that don't work. So Everyone needs a guide necessarily for their first time. Yeah. But I mean, Alan's opinion is that everyone in hell could be saved. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Alan at the end of this book. And this is the only thing about the end of the book that really just kind of pissed me off is they set Alan up to be a Messiah figure. Yeah. And he is the last. He is the furthest thing from a Messiah figure, except for the fact that he has gone through all of these tribulations. I agree. I wondered, like, I was willing to accept, because we had seen hints of it along the way, him going back for Billy um, during the car scene. Like, we had seen bits of heroism from him. We knew that he had a conscience and he had a sort of empathy for others around him. But we just, we dial it up very quickly. We're like, okay, we've done all this in, in service of Benito. And like, yeah, that was your guide. But on a certain level, you were sort of faced with this final barrier that you kind of knew you couldn't progress without having reform this part of yourself and then all of a sudden now we are faced with exiting hell and like oh actually i'm gonna just stay here and go back all the way through and i don't know that i really bought it i like i didn't saying. i didn't buy it at all yeah i mean i i understand the character setup i understand what they want to do with it mm-hmm. yeah i it, it we needed more you shifted from second gear to fifth. Yeah. Egotistical, like, wisecracking. He, he stayed egotistical unserious. and wisecracking for, you know, 180 pages. And then he had 30 pages of, of 
hard, hard character growth, and now he's a messiah figure. Like, <laughs> and no, yeah. no, I, I don't. It's not what that's not what I see. So there is that, but you know, I gotta say, it, it just ends there. Yeah, it and just ends. I had I had gone back and forth so many times through this book, like, oh, I'm not really down with with this, but this is brilliant, and oh, I was kind of lagging here, but oh my god, that's actually legitimately funny. I'm chuckling to myself as I read, and then when I turned that last page, I realized like, actually, I'm more invested than I thought. I this was a a fun, interesting. It was a great ride, and uh, there's yep. a sequel called Escape from Hell. And I immediately want yep. to seek it out. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna. I think we're both gonna check this one out. Yeah, I'm curious. I think we should do it as a Patreon episode, maybe. So I yeah. guess that means I would source this. I'm, I'm planning yeah. on sourcing it too. I, um, I would love to do it as a Patreon. Let's, let's do that here sometime this, this year. Um, just so I can read it, <laughs> have an excuse. One quick question: We both want to read the sequel. Do you think this would get someone to read Dante? No. Me neither. <laughs> I don't think I would write if someone enjoyed this book, I don't think I would recommend they read Dante. Oh no, I definitely wouldn't do that. Uh I'm just curious, like, do you think this would bring more I mean, apparently it did, according to the authors in their their afterword. Yeah, I read that um, too. And I guess I can kind of see that. It would get me I don't know. I I, I wonder like about someone who would read this book, a very slim, fast moving piece of genre fiction, right? And like, oh, I kind of want to know about the source material. And I just feel like that very first page of Dante is going to humble you quick. Like, oh, maybe I, maybe I'm good. I'll get the Cliff's notes. And, you know, that's honestly what I would recommend most people do. Yeah, to be just, honest. It's, just get uh, the monkey notes of some Dante. And yeah, I mean, it's rough stuff. This, is, this layer does this. This is here. Because like the, the source stuff, man, it is one of the great works of. And I'm sure if I could read it in the original language, too, it's probably just gorgeous language. Even some the translation I read was was very good. Yeah, but, I have a really um, good translation man, of it as well. Some, not some tough stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rough stuff, gang. Um, okay, so before we, before we housekeep, before we go away, let's, let's have a little bit of fun real fast. See if this works. Do you have any mundane crimes that should be punished, and how should they be punished? I'll, I'll, I'll start you off a little bit. I'll give wait, you wait, one. Uh, wait, uh, Mundane crimes, you're talking about like, uh, what do you mean by that? Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you my first one, and we'll, and we'll go from there. Um, rage quitting a video game that's multiplayer in the middle of something. Like, that, that's a, okay, so we're just like, that's a mundane kind of garbage crime. Like, it's a, it's a dick thing to do. My punishment so for not that. So serious damage, just like. Oh, so, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, no real serious damage, but say you're doing like Call of Duty or something with some buddies and you just get mad because you get, you know, fragged too many times and you just sign off and leave them a man short. Like, that's a dick move to make. Your punishment in my uh, Inferno land is uh-huh. every conversation you take part in ends a sentence early. Everyone walks away from you before they finish, like, the full, complete thought that they have. And they do it on purpose. It's just constantly just being in the wind a little bit. It would would drive me batshit if that were to happen to me. Yeah. Just being like, you know, Brandon, I really enjoyed that. 
and then they go away. Just no, no completed thoughts in a conversation you're having with someone. Oh my god! Imagine, oh. <laughs> imagine what happens when it's when it's consequential. Oh man. Okay, that's yeah. a good one. Um, all right. Uh, I'm just thinking like not obeying like general social niceties. All right, all right. This one drives me nuts. If you are in a living situation with someone, right? Significant other, roommates, whatever. If you have any communal food stuffs, right? The uh, the bag of chips that is still in the pantry that looks as if it's full, and no, someone ate it down to like just the last you know, dredges, half a handful of crumbs, maybe a single broken chip, and put it back in there to make it look like it's still there. Maybe because they didn't want to throw it out. Maybe just like I don't know. I I don't know the psychology of this person. They're trying to like not be the dick that ate the last chip, but like this is so much worse. Because I was just at the store. I thought we had chips. There, there are no chips. What is? No, we got. Should we throw them down in the in the shit river? This is maybe this is not so mundane. I was gonna say, are are they a hoarder <laughs> slash waster? They're a hoarder waster. They're both. They're hoarding mm. the bag of chips, but they're wasting the space and your time by leaving just oh, dredges. I want like I don't have anything ready to go. I'm just trying to think like okay, so what we're it's something small. Um, it is the, the mistaken perception of the size of something, maybe, right? Like, you are not realizing that, like, this is so little chip that you're leaving for me. So what if I were to use something small to inflict outsized punishment? So, like, what if it's no matter what, even if you take off all your clothing, it's that feeling of you got the tag, the... The rough, oh, kind of like just like constant irritability in the back of the collar, maybe of your shirt or like down at your waistband or just somewhere. I was thinking it's more of really something that's like food, perception but... based. Like, okay, maybe like when you have when you're eating something, yeah, you constantly miss your mouth. You're never able to take that last oh. bite. Like, it's like that scene in an airplane i have a drinking problem yeah yeah <laughs> and he just like brings up the glass of water and spills it over himself yeah that's better because that's based in food right or just bo- constantly biting your own lip or uh yeah something like that or everything tastes like shit or i just i like the idea of you never actually being able to take the last bite of something like you all you do is leave the that's last so much bite. better so you just yeah. constantly can't have like that final moment of finishing a meal that's perfect because that's actually got the the built-in dramatic irony. And, directly and you're related. always you're this game. You're always just a <laughs> little hungry. Like, yeah. You know yeah, how you know how good. like you want that last bite of a meal, so you're perfectly like sated and full, but you never uh-huh. get that last bite, so you're always just a little unfulfilled. Yep. That's gross. Yep. Yep. That sucks ass. That's horrible. Yeah. Or you just like you got to like a slice of pizza or just like a sub and you say you're going for that last bite you save maybe you like left the best most delectable like oh this is where the sun-dried tomatoes are really like bulked up in here and then you just it slips through your fingers or whatever and drops to the ground right yeah yeah that was the bite that That was was the bite and the all bites like the one super super (laughs) spicy dorito the one that has all that good flavor powder on it yeah and all of a sudden it just okay drops into a puddle Mm. all right yeah you got any others uh I've got one more, I think. Okay. That person who always says they know exactly what you're talking about. Like, 
Like if you if you want <laughs> to talk, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I know you do. If you're like, hey man, uh, do you ever listen to this this band, or have you ever read this book? And they're like, oh yeah, I read it back in college. And the conversation ends, and you're like, well, <laughs> I, I was hope I was hoping for some I was I was hoping for something something here. Yeah. I have I have it. Every person they talk to knows more about everything than they do. If they bring a subject up, oh. they know less than the other person. By some weird, you know, deific miracle. You could be a fucking Shakespeare scholar and you walk up and there's just, just a Shakespeare scholar who has two extra degrees that you don't have. And they know every line, baby. They knew Shakespeare. They hung out, they hung out with him and Marlowe and they had some fucking drinks together and stuff. Or even just like you're trying to talk about a play. It's like, oh, no, I don't read his mass produced plays. Like, I only read his early stuff. Like, you have to actually delve into his notebooks and, you know, yeah, his, have, I like have, his unfinished shit. Have, have, <laughs> have you not read, have you not read his, his, uh, his unreleased stuff? Oh, that, yeah. And just the most belittling, dismissive, yeah. condescending way possible, yeah, right? Oh, yeah, that's the worst. That's some rough stuff. Um, all right, that's a good one. Uh, it's probably just the most basic ass. The only other thing I'm I'm thinking of here, um, not holding the door for someone coming in after you into the, the store or something. Yeah. <laughs> I have or really, just like making like a you're really, gonna... <laughs> I have a really good punishment for that, but it's also kind of evil. You just constantly walk. Go, what do you got? You just constantly walk into plain glass, like just okay. yeah. I was thinking. Something like that, yeah. Just constantly, you think there that it's empty space, and you just walk right into a, a plain glass window, or sliding glass door, or something like that. That's good. I thought about like getting it more generalized, where you're constantly kind of the inverse of what you had with your first one, where you're constantly given the impression that something is being given to you, or you're about to receive. Not even just like. A physical object but maybe some some social nicety or something but then it's like pulled away before you can receive it or you're just like baited into thinking you're about to have something and then it's you know what i mean as the door would be like oh this door is being held for me and oh no it's not actually it's every like handshake or high five ends with a too slow That took you a second, bud. <laughs> Everybody for the rest of eternity is is pulling that on you. Yeah, that's all you get is like and this, the, the too slow or the hand through the hair or something like that. You never get. And you never get wise to it. No, it's, you it's that always kind of stuff. fall like, for hey, it. What's that on your shirt? And yeah. then just they flick your nose. You fall. You <laughs> or, fall uh, for it every time. Yeah. Or the hey, what's that on your thumb? Huh? Gee, you're dumb. That kind of shit. Just like yeah. all er, your your boss. Your girlfriend, just whoever. Yeah. Everyone. God, that's so good. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So, um, so hell. Hell, hell is hell. Is it other people? Is it of your own making? Hell is other people to me. We'll find. Uh, <laughs> but except for you, listener. Love you. Give you a little kiss there. Um, <laughs> as always, you can contact us via email at sourcenotfoundpod at gmail.com. Tell us what your hell is um, or, or anything else you want to talk to us about. You can find us on all of your social medias at sourcenotfoundpodcast. We have a YouTube channel now that Brandon it has been tirelessly working on. Uh, 
you're going to see some of his Twitch stuff up there. You're going to see all of our episode audios, all sorts of fun stuff. Just uh, search out Source Not Found Podcast. And uh, our Patreon, if you would like to support us financially, we, we always would appreciate that. And this is just a little, little bit before I talk about our lovely, lovely shout out to your members. Get into that shout out tier fast because starting February, uh, shout out tier is going up. But anybody who gets in there before February, you get grandfathered in, baby. You get to sign that lovely the clause a little tier. early. Yeah, a little. You get to be in the founders club. Um, and bragging rights for all eternity. Yeah, and 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 the people we we've got we've got a few people in there now. Brandon, who are those lovely, lovely people? We got Jacob Smendel, Susie Daggs, 13th Horseman, and Frederick Viberg Vorha. Friendship. And just personal plug, twitch.tv slash legionbug, L-E-J-U-N-E-B-U-G. If you come on by, Jankuary is coming to a close. We have finished our exploration of Janky Games, and we're moving on to the romantic season. And if you're kind of curious about what we're talking about next, I might be playing a little game that we're going to be discussing here soon. Come by, see what it is. Or do we want to go ahead and say what's coming up in uh, February? Should we just get to it? Uh, yeah, sure. We're doing Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah, we are. I never played a Leisure Suit Larry game. How about you? No. No, I haven't. I'm very concerned, but also a little excited about it. So yeah, that's... Guys, happy, happy New Year's revelations. We went through hell and back for you. We did. Um, and keep an eye on your toilets for those Freddy Kruegers and watch out for any white vans with clowns in them. And if I may, as an ode to Dante, I did rehearse a bit of verse. Today's sign-off has got me rhyming. Some brief advice in rhythmic timing. When life gets you down, you gotta stay strong. Even in the face of a building-sized devil dong. Stay climbing. <laughs>